1: What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. At Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, you're back. Nice to see huh. you, man. I'm back, dude. How are you? Carl, nice to see you. Eh, I've been better. Okay. I've been better. <laughs> I don't know. I feel kind of sick to my stomach right now. I'm not going to lie. I've had this sense of looming doom since um, you know, the war started why don't we just get started right away and, and just cut through the, the subtleties um how are you feeling right now we haven't really talked since the invasion started well we talked personally actually i saw you i yeah i saw you actually a couple of days ago in person however we haven't talked in podcast form
2: yeah i mean you know it's it's uh very uncomfortable um i'm starting to get a little bit burnt out on it, but I feel like an obligation, you know, for both the show and all the people who listen to pay attention. Uh, And it's a bummer, man. Um, I have seen way too many dead bodies, um, and it's just kind of something that comes with the territory. And I think you were talking about this a while ago when we were doing the uh, Korean War uh, episodes, which are effectively on pause for now. But you were talking about an, uh, an author that, you know, she was very, you know, affected by reading all the
1: terrible things about war. Uh, do you remember who I'm talking about here? I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. The author of Rape of Nanking, Iris Chang. So I, I think she had some other issues as well, but I don't think doing the research for the Rape of Nanking helped her psychological state, and she unfortunately committed suicide um, in between because she wrote the Rape of Nanking, and then she was in a process of writing another book, um, about some of the Japanese war crimes in the Philippines. And I think in that, while she was researching that book is when she took her life. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I've just heard this, um, that if you do heavy research into very um, dark, sad topics like this, um, especially war, where, you know, you're looking at, you're researching um, just a lot of human suffering, you can experience uh, side effects of PTSD. We don't have like a sponsor for the
2: show right now, but I encourage anyone who might be feeling, you know, kind of negatively like this and, and, you know, kind of feeling down to, I encourage you to look, look for help, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense to go it alone. There are plenty of, you know, companies and apps and things like that, that you can use, you know, relatively quickly and inexpensively to, to talk through some of these issues. And I, I certainly intend to, to talk with my therapist about, about, just some of the way that I'm feeling about this too, because like I said, I've seen too much shit already, you know? And what's crazy about doing the research for this, um, you know, as it relates to the author that you just mentioned is that, you know, one thing that we get is live all the time, updates about how gruesome and terrible war is. And, And we've covered plenty of war. I mean, like, you know, I remember, I felt the same way when we were covering Yemen and I felt the same way when we were covering Syria, you know? Uh, but there's just something about this that seems so in
1: my face for some reason. Uh, and it's starting, to, it's starting to get to me a little bit. Well, I can tell you why. It's because you're not looking for it. It's just being shoved in your face. So, you know, you have to actively search for information on the war in Yemen or the war in... Well, Syria was actually very um, in your face as well. And, you know, the the videos and stuff that were coming out of the Syrian war were... There was a lot more. There was a lot more. Like pretty much every single guy had a phone on him. And then there were real brutal things that were filmed and they were all over the internet. You're not really getting that here. Um, you know, you're seeing the aftermath of a of a shelling or something like that, but you're not really seeing the same uh, theatric killing that ISIS did during the Syrian war. I was just going to say, I, I'll stumble across some article about you know, some shelling somewhere. And I'm just like, let me read about this. And
2: then suddenly I stumble upon a video of a car exploding or some shit like that. And it's just, it's very unsettling, you know, yeah. like I, f- I feel like I'll click on something and now I'm just worried to click on shit. Cause I feel like who's, who's, who am I going to see this dead now? You know, and it's, it's yeah. very uncomfortable.
1: Well, do yourself a favor and, and uh, take a step back from it. Looking at that type of stuff, is not going to help you at all. It's not going to help you understand, you know, that stuff is going on, you know, it's war. So. That stuff is obviously going on. You don't need to track it and look at the videos. Um, you can you can honestly just assume that is happening on the ground. But honestly, you know, my I, I've been actively avoiding looking at videos like that. I really don't have a, I really don't have the desire to, or even really follow the war that closely. Um, I've just been looking at high level stuff like you know. Um, the maps and how they're changing and, and um, just very high level things uh, rather than get bogged down because there's very little information that's coming out pretty much most of the information is coming out as propaganda from both sides the reason why there's an extra layer of tension here is not for obvious reasons it's because the united states can possibly get pulled into a war and this is like the the closest that we've ever had to uh, being pulled into a major nuclear war in our lifetime this is how our parents grew up essentially like having those uh, those school time like nuclear drills the dive and duck or whatever they called it hiding at your desk so i feel like we're living through that again because i mean right now i feel like everything that our foreign policy establishment is doing right now is, is trying to make it worse so did you see this i want to touch on this so um Blinken announced that the U.S. would allow the Poles to transfer its stock of Soviet-era Mig's to Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I have been reading a lot about this, but I, is this now like confirmed?
1: Is this like new information from like today or, or yesterday? Or how that was, was yesterday. And Anthony Blinken, he went out and said, "Well, you know, we, you know, we we confirmed with with Poland that, you know, they have a big stockpile of um, you know Soviet-era planes that." Ukrainians can can um, can pilot, and uh, because you know they're experienced, the, the Ukrainian pilots they have you know the old Soviet aircraft. Um, so he was saying that they could possibly use those, or they can have Ukrainian. I'm not exactly clear how that would work if Ukrainian pilots would go to Poland and fly out of Poland, or if they would transport the planes to Ukraine, which also seems pretty crazy. And it also seems like those planes wouldn't even be able to find a landing strip before they were shot down. Um the the Russians have actually um I did see this that they they unrolled the uh the S four hundred and that was the first time they've ever used it in combat. There's
2: so many factors right now because you know there's there's the the point that you pointed out earlier I, I read about this um rumor that we would be transferring some over and in return, the U.S. would be giving the Polish, um, like American jets and, you know, to replace them. But, you know, Russia and specifically Putin are now saying that any, any planes that take off from, you know, any other third country and go into and do any operations in Ukraine would be considered uh, that country entering into the war and would make their, you know, airfields fair game for shelling, which is scary. Um, but it's also kind of like a double standard, because isn't Belarus doing the same shit with Russia, right? Like, they're letting Russian troops and, you know, sorties fly out of their country. And that's totally cool. But you know, if somebody else does, it's not, you know, the the other point that's, that's crazy about this, and you also said this, is that there's probably not a lot of good airspace or uh, airstrips, I should say, in Ukraine to use, maybe, maybe in the far west. Uh, there are some that are, that can be utilized, but they'd be immediate targets for things like the S 400. And I know that, um, we recently have seen, uh, Russia banging out their good jets. Uh, and some of them are getting shot down. Maybe we'll talk about that as well. Um, it seems like it's stepping up a little bit in terms of like weaponry. It looks like the, the, the first wave of grunts, uh, is over and we're kind of shifting into a new phase where they're starting to use the good shit. Uh, and I'm wondering how that plays out, but, um, Maybe we could just pull this back because I feel like we have so many things to talk about today, and I just want to make it clear. I think this episode is going to be mostly, you know, a lot of stuff that we've been talking about in our Slack channel and Patreon, so requested content. And we weighed out actually whether we or not we want to drop that catalog episode that we already have recorded and edited on the Korean War that fe- features Singman Rhee. But I think, yeah, you know, obviously, given the circumstances, it would be better for us to continue our coverage. On the situation in ukraine so uh just quick programming note if you're a fan of the show and you've been listening for a while and you want us to cover a particular topic a really great way to do that would be to join our patreon uh and you'll get access to our awesome slack account uh where we've been doing a lot of chatting on this particular subject there's so much material that you can read on there and you can just request things that you want us to talk about but you know from there what are some of the things that you think you want to talk about
1: henry the obvious thing I want to talk about first is just the craziness right now of what the U.S. is doing right now to make this war as bad as possible. And I just want to come out and say that, no, I do I do not support the invasion before someone starts labeling me a Putin apologist. No, I do not support the invasion. And I think uh, Putin is a cold gangster, but nevertheless what the u.s is doing right now is just encouraging the ukrainians to die and i think we definitely underestimated the ukrainian army you know they're probably the second or third largest military in europe right now or the third best uh military in europe so they are doing really well they're punching above their weight class but like don't let all of the the media confuse people like The Russians have the pure advantage of this. And a lot of Westerners see this as like a game. And um, just the recklessness of that. And then we're talking about insurgencies, like creating an insurgency if Russia starts to occupy the country. We're talking about turning the country into Afghanistan or Syria. Just like sink that in. like We're talking about transforming this country into a battleground that takes the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. You're gonna fund resistance fighters, you're gonna have foreign fighters from all over the world come in there, which are which is already happening. I'm getting real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Moderate rebel vibes
2: from the for, the idea of foreign fighters, right? Like the idea is that we go ahead and support an insurgency and then it gets co-opted by some of the nasties. Because, you know, I I give props to the people who legitimately want to help Ukraine militarily and they're not crazy. Maybe they're Ukrainian from abroad. Maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe they can provide expertise and they truly just want to help. But let's be real, people who volunteer to go across the world to fight in a foreign
1: war that they don't have a strong tie to takes a certain kind of person. A lot of times, it's a collection of the world's losers who travel right. and, and fight these wars, and um, you know, my worry is that I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to be careful with my words because we're in an extra heated political climate right now, so I'm going to try to be as careful with my words as possible when in regards to Ukraine and and um, some of the far right militias there. I don't think that all of Ukraine or the entire National Guard or army is full of fascist. There's a small but influential part of the Ukrainian National Guard that abides by neo-Nazi ideology. And we're not talking about like a fringe group like the Proud Boys in America where, you know, they have no power. They're ingrained in the government and they're influential. And that's what makes it very, very troubling. Um, I'm not at all saying that the Ukrainian military is all a bunch of fascists. That's, that wouldn't be the case at all. And, you know, I think that the denazification justification from Putin is, um, I think that is very vague and very dangerous as well. Like, what is he going to do? Is he just going to start labeling people? Is he going to make a list and just kill? Like, Oh, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi. Um, I think that's very dangerous as well, but you can't, you can't deny that. This this doesn't exist in that in within their ranks. Um, it would just be a flat out lie. I mean this is this is a a hardcore group, and uh, I am would be nervous that this would create a cauldron of far right extremists in the country. So let's just say far right extremists from the United States. Okay, I want to train my militia. Where, is, where do I go train? Well, why don't I go to Ukraine where they have their battle hard and they have a lot of experience and they can teach me some stuff. I'm going to go fight in Ukraine, train. So that's what I'm really, that's what I'm worried about, that there can be some type of blowback consequence, just like in Afghanistan, where the origin story of al-Qaeda, they're from the Afghan Mujahideen. So I'm very nervous. I, 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 would, I don't want to play with fire like that. But I think the bigger issue though, is that, just prolonging the war, it's just going to cause more death. It's just going to cause a lot more death, um, a lot more destruction and um, a bigger refugee crisis. And it's just going to further destabilize the region. The, war, the larger, the longer this war goes on, the worse it is. So that's what I support, just the war ending as soon as possible. And what's really bothering me is that right now, just this response right there and then my disagreement on nato expansion is considered like a fringe thing right now in in the discourse not saying that i support the russian invasion that is not the case whatsoever i think that they're criminally compliant with 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 what's going on i don't think that putin even needed to do that i think it was stupid i think they're going to pay for it at the end um but um this is not. This is an argument that was that was popular between um, you know top people in the White House between uh, Barack Obama. So I have a list. There's this Twitter thread that's going around, and it lists warnings about NATO expansion from just influential foreign policy figures, whether they are uh, historians or whether they work for uh, uh, in the State Department. So uh, first, George Kennan who was the leading advocate for the containment policy towards, uh, towards the Soviet Union. Um, he was called the wise man or one of the wise men of the U.S. foreign policy. Um, and then when he was asked about NATO expansion, I have a quote from him. It says, I think it's the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it's a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. This expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn over in their graves. We have signed up to protect the whole series of countries, even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. NATO expansion was simply a lighthearted action by a Senate that had no real interest in foreign affairs. So John Mearsheimer is the leader of the Realist School of International Relations. So he's okay. um, dean a dean of the yeah foreign policy realist he's a he's a dean of the international relations school at university of chicago he has a lecture right now with 17 million views called why is ukraine the west's fault and basically he says and he gives a warning and he's no he's not a dove at all he's not someone to uh capitulate but he's just a foreign policy realist and what he said was that we're encouraging Ukraine to take a hardline stance against Russia, and in response, Russia is going to wreck the country. Exact words he says that we're encouraging Ukraine to stand up to the Russians right now and have a hardline stance, and we're leading them basically to their death. Russia is going to retaliate and is going to destroy their country, which honestly we're seeing right now. <laughs> Not saying it's right for Russia to destroy their country. I'm just saying it was a predictable consequence rubbing up on their shoulders and saying, hey, we'll get you on the NATO, we'll get you integrated on the West, we'll plant some weapons, we'll fill you up, we'll train your fighters. I can see their point of why they're trying to pull the United States into the war. Like, I'm not even criticizing Zelensky for trying to make the pretext to get the West in the war. You can see why it's existential for them. So Henry Kissinger, he wrote in the Washington Post in 2014, Ukraine has been independent for only 23 years. It had previously been under some kind of foreign rule since the 14th century. Not surprisingly, its leaders have not learned the art of compromise, even less of historic perspective. The politics of the post-independence Ukraine clearly demonstrates that the root of the problem lies in efforts by Ukrainian politicians to impose their will on recalcitrant parts of the country, first by one faction, then by the other. A wise U.S. policy towards Ukraine would seek a way for the two parts of the country to cooperate with each other. We should seek reconciliation, not the domination of a faction, which is basically what happened in 2014, uh, which kicked off the the war. You know, the there was a kind of a neutral, more Russian leading a Russian leaning leader who was very corrupt, and the initial revolution wasn't was a pro democracy, uh, anti corruption protest but you know it was just subverted by some of the kind of more far right elements there in ukraine and it turned into a movement that was just you know anti-russian eastern ukraine is predominantly russian speakers so you know you're kind of forcing them into a faction and you're and you're causing that strife and, and that's what caused you know the Luhansk and Donetsk to break away in the first place by outlawing the Russian language or making Russian not an official language. So Jack Matlock, who was the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union under Reagan, in 1997, he testified to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and said, I consider the administration's recommendation to take new members into NATO at this time misguided. If it should be approved by the United States Senate, it may well go down in history as the most profound strategic blunder made since the end of the Cold War. Far from improving the security of the U.S., its allies, and the nations that wish to enter the alliance, it could well encourage a chain of events that could produce the most serious security threat to this nation since the Soviet Union collapsed. We got William Perry, who was Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, said in his memoirs, I did not believe that this, that the timing was right to push for NATO enlargement. Most important, we needed to keep moving forward with Russia. And I fear that NATO enlargement at this time would shove us into reverse. Let's see, what else do I have? All right, William Burns, this is, an important, this is a very important one because William Burns is a director of the CIA right now and is I think one of the reasons why the Biden administration correctly saw the Russian invasion coming. So from the Wikileaks cable from 2008, nyet means nyet. Russia would view further eastward expansion as a potential military threat. NATO enlargement, particularly to Ukraine, remains an emotional and neurological issue for Russia, but strategic policy considerations also underlie strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. Ukraine entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for Russia, and I have yet to find anyone who views U- Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interest. Um, he was also the ambassador to uh, he was the ambassador to Moscow when he wrote this memo. Uh, we got Robert Gates as well, who was the director of the CIA under um, Bush Senior, and then the Secretary of Defense under Bush Junior and Obama. Um, in his memoirs, he wrote. Moving so quickly to expand NATO was a mistake. Trying to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO was truly overreaching and especially monumental provocation. Like none of these people are doves. Here's another one, Robert McNamara. Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson, the guy who helped liaison into the Vietnam War. Um, he wrote, a, he was in an open letter to Clinton. US-led effort to expand NATO is a policy error of historic proportion and would foster instability in Europe. Yeah, the reason why I'm listing all of these people is because none of these people are, are like anti-war doves or anything like that. These are all people who believe in like the U.S. security state. All of them saw this coming as a consequence for expanding eastward after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, I mean, I find it so, really
2: fascinating, and, and I'm, I'm just trying to parse through some of this because... And it's easy, it's easy to look backwards, like like hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And so it does seem like all these folks have, have, you know, predetermined that this was going to happen. Um, and, you know, I, I just wonder about it because this is, I don't know how to explain myself here. It, to underscore your point, Henry, it doesn't give Russia the right to do what they're doing but i think this context helps because you know to another point you're making we're kind of pumping them up we're pumping up the ukrainians and we're saying like yeah go get them and they don't stand a chance and we're not going to do anything militarily cuz we're not stupid you know it would take quite a quite a big line to be crossed by russia for us to for us or nato or anyone else to to get involved and again i i don't want to i <laughs> I don't want to say that, that Putin's doing the right thing here. He's doing absolutely the wrong thing, the worst
1: possible thing. Yeah, let me but reiterate he- that I do not support the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Right. It, it's just a total tragedy. It's a tragedy for all the parties involved. Uh, Russia, like, just like the average Russian citizen, Ukraine, um, or all the surrounding states are going to be destabilized. Mm-hmm. The, the global economy is going to be wrecked. Prices of commodities are going to rise. Um, the prices of food are going to rise globally. It is just a disaster. And if you're really concerned about, let's just say if you are from the realist school and you know you want to say um, you know, China is our big security threat, this is just going to push Russia and China Russia together. And, China and you together. can together. see that mm-hmm. it seems like Xi Jinping gave Putin the okay to invade. seems well, like he pretty clearly said, hey, I'm going to do this. And he's like, all right, make it quick. That's how I imagine <laughs> that happened.
2: <laughs> well, that's that's an interesting segue, Henry. And, and I want to bring up uh, a topic that was brought up in, our, in one of the threads in Slack surrounding the interactions between China and Russia regarding the war. And I kind of also want to expand on this a little bit and just talk generally speaking about all the other nations who have either outright supported the Russian invasion or who have notably abstained from denouncing Russia's actions in the recent UN vote. And, you know, what's interesting about this topic, I think, is that Our media definitely makes it look like Russia is all alone in this particular war uh, and that in a vacuum, they're just being incredibly evil. Uh, But, you know, with with a closer inspection of what's going on, you know, in foreign policy, it actually shows that there seems to be more support for Russia, either explicitly or implicitly, than what we're led to to believe from the Western media. Uh, And I want to be careful here to draw a distinction between... Abstaining and denouncing Russia outright. Uh, And, you know, I I do think that um, it's important to take a look at those abstain votes because when we think about how Russia's actions in Ukraine are impacting foreign relations globally, you kind of want to look at the ones that either chose not to vote or, you know, voted to abstain. Uh, Okay, so some context uh, for what I'm talking about here on March 2nd, just a couple days ago, it's the 7th today. So five days ago, the United Nations General Assembly, they overwhelmingly voted to reprimand Russia for invading Ukraine, and they also demanded that they that fighting stop and that Russia withdrew its military. And the vote was in favor by 141 nations, so it's a lot, the overwhelming majority, and five nations uh, decided to reject that um that premise. And notably, though, there were 35 abstentions, which means that 35 countries decided neither to reprimand Russia nor support Russia. Um, So here's a full list of all the countries who abstained uh, in alphabetical order. So Algeria, Angola, Armenia, Bangladesh, Bolivia, Burundi, Central African Republic, China, Congo, Cuba, El Salvador, Equatorial Guinea, India, Iran, Iraq, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Laos, Madagascar, Mali, Mongolia, Mozambique, Namibia, Nicaragua, Pakistan, Senegal, South Africa, South Sudan, uh, Sri Lanka, Sudan, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, Vietnam, and Zimbabwe. And you so can actually add world. to this... Sorry? So the emerging world. The... Yeah. Effectively, the emerging world. There's also some interesting ones here. Uh, people who chose not to vote at all, right? Um, and uh, Azerbaijan, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Eswatini, Ethiopia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Morocco, Togo, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Venezuela. But I think Venezuela actually couldn't vote because they didn't pay their UN dues. So so there's that. Um like I'm not going to go into every single nation that voted to abstain or who outright rejected the UN vote to reprimand Russia but I do want to go over a couple of noteworthy interactions there. So maybe we can start with like the five nations who voted against this resolution just outright and those were Eritrea, North Korea, Syria, Belarus and of course Russia, right?
1: And I'm not particularly so wait, surprised. Eritrea, by the repeat that Eritrea.
2: Eritrea, North Korea, North Syria. Syria Belarus, and Russia. Okay. Right? Like I said, I'm not, I'm not surprised by this list, except for maybe Eritrea. I don't quite understand the relationship between them and Russia uh, just yet, but that that was, I well, guess, a standout Well, well they're basically like North Korea and Africa. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, now, Russia and but Belarus they're a real are garrison
1: They're a real garrison state that is, um, that is um, kind of isolated from the rest of the world. It's interesting mm-hmm. because they recently created relationship, they made diplomatic ties back with Ethiopia, um, which we had talked about, but that was like in an effort to take down like a certain, you know, the Tigray region. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know, maybe I haven't really looked into their relationship with Russia, but it may be because um, they purchased weapons from them. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's probably it. They buy weapons from Russia.
2: Yeah. And, and to to kind of close that loop, Ethiopia chose not to vote
1: at all. Yeah. Which is right. interesting because Ethiopia, out of the, out of um, all the African nations, they have the well, they had the cl- one of the closest relationships with the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but there seems to be some tension as of re- as of late because of the war there. That's right. Which is still ongoing. Which is nuts. Mainly because there was a change in leadership. But I, we're going to get too far into that. I don't want to. We, we have a lot of episodes that cover the Ethiopian war. Um, right. Listen to them. I think they're they're pretty, they're pretty important. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, go on. Sorry.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living, available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So, so obviously Russia and Belarus make sense. Duh. They're going to vote No. Uh, North Korea making the list doesn't surprise me, but I think in my opinion, it's more of them feeling left out of the news cycle. (laughs) You know, they've been firing a bunch of rockets into the sea to get some attention again. So not surprised by North Korea, but I want to dig into some of the other votes, uh, specifically the the abstention. i want to start with India. So India, their abstention kind of makes sense to me because the relationship that they have with russia has been getting stronger over the years Uh, you know india is of course a democracy and and depending on who you ask and when you ask uh, india might be considered more western leaning though that that opinion is in hot debate Um, but the reality is that india and russia have quite a bit of economic ties with one another Uh, i read that just last december modi and putin signed a bunch of defense agreements uh, one of which included India's procurement of more than 600,000 assault rifles from Russia, uh, among many other weapons packages. So you can imagine that India wouldn't want to sour that deal by condemning Russia outright. So it kind of makes sense that they would abstain. Now, Modi did make a call for like an immediate cessation of violence, but I think that's just more political talk than action. You know, the actions Yeah, so did the speak. Taliban. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was it we were, we were joking about this in, in, in Slack the other day you were saying how like oh it's 2026 the Taliban has brokered peace between Ukraine and Russia <laughs> you know in the Kandahar
1: reason. peace talks
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be something man wouldn't it <laughs> anyway uh, let, let's get back to these list of, of these folks that abstained uh, so the, the one that's like that Brought us to this segue was China. So, you know, I mean, we've talked about China and Russia a lot in the past, and I don't think we should particularly rehash every single point. If you want more information about that, you can go back and listen to some of those episodes. Um, You know, officially, China hasn't taken a side in this particular conflict. Uh, On the one hand, I think China has a pretty good relationship with Ukraine. You know, they care about doing business with Europe generally, and they don't want to interrupt their plans for the, you know, the new Silk Road, right? The, the Belt Road Initiative. Uh, on the other hand, though, you know, we've, we have been seeing this, you know, increasing relationship developing between Putin and Xi. And we see this manifesting in the form of tighter economic relations, uh, military, uh, like war games and things like that. And, and there's this idea floating around that perhaps there's going to there's going to be this new block created uh, to counter NATO. And there's some evidence of this, uh, you know, by an agreement that was signed uh, just on February fourth of this year between China and Russia, and and it declared a kind of a creation of a kind of like new world order, if you will, right? That they described, uh, and it was like a partnership without limits, you know, where they can agree uh, uh, on. Know, certain foreign policy uh, objectives and one of those objectives was that ukraine should remain out of nato uh and maybe this was the green light that russia needed to go ahead with the invasion and i think you you pointed it out a, a few episodes ago uh but there was some rumors that russia held off on this invasion until after the beijing olympics you know i, I personally haven't seen any concrete evidence of this but the idea certainly does make sense considering the relationship that they have together um, but one thing that we saw just this week uh, is an increase in purchase of wheat from Russia so China is going to be you know consuming a lot more Russian product here and this part is obviously very important because Russia basically boxed into a wall you know from all these sanctions you know economically speaking and you know they're probably sitting on a whole lot of perishable product you know like Food products like wheat. Um, now, I'm not a farmer. I don't know what the shelf life of wheat is. I know you can store it in a silo, but you know, generally speaking, it's food, and if you don't use it, you lose it. So, you know, this is kind of an important lifeline, you know, for Russia, you know, while it copes with the many economic impacts of the sanctions that were placed on them. And what's interesting about this whole situation is that while China did abstain from directly condemning Russia's invasion, you know, in that Security Council vote on Sunday, they also declined to directly support it. And that kind of puts them in a good position and not get caught with their pants down if this blows up in Russia's face. On the other hand, it also puts them in the position to not upset Russia if it goes well for Russia. They're playing their cards right, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, they're being Machiavellian about it. Yeah couple other ones.
2: Um, So UAE, uh, they abstained, uh, which is pretty interesting uh, because they happen to be part of OPEC, right? So Russia has been making a lot of strides in fostering that relationship with the UAE. And I think it seems to be paying off for them because now them and and some other nations like Qatar and Saudi Arabia also voted to abstain. They also happen to be oil-producing countries. So as far as like... Remember
1: that video of, uh, Mm. of MBS... Like right after he killed Jamal Khashoggi, or had Jamal Khashoggi killed, Putin saw him at the—I think it was at the G12. He's like, "Hey, what's up?" They give like a very warm pound and hug. Yeah, I do remember that. It was right after, and everyone was like, "How is, is like like how will, um, how will Muhammad bin Salman be treated after the brutal murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi?" And everyone's like, will he be Putin's isolated? Like, will, good, no, it's good, bro. And then Putin's like, hey, what up? <laughs> what's up, man? Yeah, you re- killed journalists? I killed journalists.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And, and you know, that that's good you context for this. You killed your first journalist,
1: man. I killed a bunch of them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that's good context for this because I think that Russia has been doing a lot to make sure that they gain the favor of all these other oil-producing countries because... You know, that's, that's a strategic move, you know, against very specifically the United States, right? Uh, okay, you sanction us, we're going we're gonna to fuck with oil, sp- oil supply worldwide, you know? Um, it's an interesting angle. Uh, I got maybe two more that I want to dig into for this. So this one was interesting to me. Hungary, as a part of the addition to the abstentions, um so you would think because they're in europe that they would vote in line with their neighboring countries but they they didn't and something i learned uh, about them that i'd love to dig into a little bit deeper in the future is that apparently before this war there were some other countries in europe who had similar issues with ukraine around the rights of their respective ethnic minorities that were living in ukraine now I gotta admit, I have very limited knowledge on this particular subject, but from what I've read so far, it seems that Romania and Hungary and Poland have all made some similar claims that Russia has made as a pretext for this war, you know, um, where their ethnic minorities were mistreated in, in one way or another. Perhaps m- maybe not to the extent of, you know, the Russians in the Donbass, but certainly they had very similar qualms. Uh, with the way that Ukraine was treating their ethnic minorities. Uh, of course, Poland and Romania both did vote to condemn Russia. But that just makes me question why Hungary decided to abstain. So I'll have to look into this a bit for, further, but I don't know. I found it very interesting that a European nation ended up on this particular abstention list. And and, and again, I want to underscore that abstain like voting to abstain is not the same as voting to not
1: condemn Russia, but it certainly does raise some eyebrows. Yeah, it's like voting present. Yeah, I don't know why exactly Hungary Hungary decided not to vote. Um, I don't know if that's like Viktor Orbán thing or what, but yeah, that's something I need to look into. I don't really know that much about it.
2: Yeah. Uh, last one on this topic, and then we can move on. Uh, so the stands right. Uh, so we all know about the stands: Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, you know, all, all of them abstained from voting. Uh, so they, they've obviously been a part of the historical Russian sphere of influence. So obviously not surprised that they wouldn't, you know, vote to condemn Russia. Uh, but I will say that the context under which they probably did not vote to condemn Russia is equally interesting. So... I learned today that apparently 1 in 10 citizens of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan work in Russia. Said another way, 30% of the GDP of Tajikistan, 28% of the GDP of Kyrgyzstan, and almost 12% of Uzbekistan's GDP comes from income of those citizens that work in Russia, and and they send the money back to their respective countries. So if you read into it, as I am, if these countries voted to condemn Russia, that could very well mean a huge hit to each of those countries' GDP. They could expel those migrant workers. They could prevent them from sending the money back to those countries. So, you know, can you imagine you're Tajikistan and 30% of your GDP is coming from this source? Like, of course, you're not going to vote to condemn them.
1: Well, yeah, of course they're not going to do that. Because, well, another thing is they rely on Russia for security. So... That's right. As we were talking about a couple months ago with the riots in Kazakhstan where, you know, over 100 people were killed and Mm -hmm. very strange situation. It was the the CSTO, the... um, Basically, it's like the Russian version of NATO. It's a military alliance between um, mainly, um, you know, Russia... um, Kazakhstan, um, Armenia, um, I think I have full list members right here. i forgetting all of them. Belarus, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. Yeah, so, you know, the countries you had just mentioned, the stands. Um, they rely— I mean, Russia makes up the bulk of that. So, you know, they're providing—they're an active military alliance with each other. Right. Right, but, but what's interesting about it is that they didn't vote
2: in support or— rather rejecting the claim of russia
3: either
1: well yeah they're not gonna support russia just because it's so unpopular across the world because they don't want to be hit with the consequences so they just want to kind of sit it out rather than openly condemn them or Mm -hmm. um openly support them they just want to sit it out and just they're they're probably just waiting for waiting for it to go away because they also do business well i think uh Tajikistan and and Kyrgyzstan are like the two most corrupt countries on earth, or two of the most (laughs) corrupt countries on earth. So there's no one puts their money there. So no one's really doing business there because it's just they do business with China, but um, I don't think there's really that much um, like capital from Western countries going into those countries just because like we're talking about like levels of corruption beyond comprehension. Like politicians gifting people gold mines and stuff, like literal people giving gold mines to people. Um, in, the t- in the case of Tajikistan, um, so um, I still think there's something
2: to be read into there, right? They, they yeah. want to sit it out, but the the <laughs> North Korea doesn't want to sit it out. <laughs> you know, Syria doesn't want to sit it out. Um, you know, Syria, Syria is obviously infinitely grateful to Russia. You know, in in the the Syrian civil war, you know, for their support there. But it it's just funny that they are in line with them alliance militarily and they've Russia even came to uh, Kazakhstan's support very recently and they still didn't go come out and support Russia in their endeavors.
1: Well, all the I find that interesting. That, well, all the countries that voted in support of Russia, they've all have they have nothing to lose. So mm-hmm. Syria, Belarus, North Korea, they're all countries that have a shit ton of sanctions on them already. So there's really nothing you could you can't really sanction them more.
2: Yeah, but no, like you said, to your point, nobody, nobody's putting their money in, you know, Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> you yeah. know. So do they have anything to lose? They might actually benefit, right? Maybe Russia appreciates
1: the fact that they supported them and does more.
2: I don't know. Who knows?
1: Well, China does business with those countries. Um, they're important for the Belt and Road Initiative, but they mm-hmm. kind of have a, a partnership with Russia in that regard. Um
2: I want to talk about something else, um, if you don't mind. Uh, there, there's this one thing that a, uh, uh, one of our Patreon members had pointed out to me and reminded me that when we spoke about China invading Taiwan, that I reviewed a study of how and when they, they could do it. And one of the points was that you know, there's, there's a very limited window on which China could invade Taiwan because of the weather patterns. And those time periods are uh, in in and around October, as well as in and around April, right? And so he pointed out and made an interesting connection that, oh well, what if China's waiting until that window to jump in? Because there, there's before the the wars actually started, there has been a lot of these like you know armchair geopolitical you know. Ideas that say that oh China is gonna jump into Taiwan at the same time that Russia invades Ukraine, um, which is half baked in in a certain capacity. But at this point now I'm starting to think about it again uh, because we are coming up to April and you know the the seas are calming there. But I will say this: I'm gonna be looking at China over the next few weeks uh, and paying attention to troop deployments. One very important point that I point out in, in our episode on China invading Taiwan is that we would see it coming a mile away. And if there's anything to be learned about this invasion in Ukraine, it's that when you start stacking a shit ton of troops on the border, it's not
1: just for funsies. So I'll be watching that. What do you think? Well, you know, I was burnt once with that. So <laughs> yeah, you were more right than I was in predicting the invasion. I psyched myself out and said, "Nah, they're not going to do it."
2: Anyway, yeah. So I'll be I'll be watching this. Um, I just thought it was an interesting like line of reasoning. Uh, if they're aligned in any way, then it I guess it would make sense and it would happen fairly soon. But the thing about that is that it's not going to happen overnight, and we're gonna see we're gonna see it. We're gonna see it happening a mile away. So I'll be paying attention. And, uh, you know, if you're out there and you want to join the Patreon and you start seeing evidence of troop movements on the east coast of China, like, please let me know. <laughs> I'd love to take a look at it because uh, that's going to be a, a little pet project of mine. So far, I've found nothing. So um, here's another interesting story. Uh, so um, a question that came up in our Slack was, you know, do you think Putin, uh, Putin's power might be uh, weakening? Uh, And this question was directly related to, you know, the worldwide sanctions against Russian oligarchs and rich guys and stuff like that. And, you know, we've seen, I think in the last week or so, a lot of news coming out about how these oligarchs are being treated in the wake of this conflict. As a matter of fact, you know, just as it started, one of the first episodes that we recorded as it was happening, I was like, what is sanctioning a bunch of rich guys going to do about the war? Um, I still kind of feel that way, to, to be clear. But, you know... Now we're actually seeing stuff happening. You know, we're seeing things like oligarchs not being able to fly around in their private jets, you know, to and from countries, uh, not being able to access money in foreign banks, getting their yachts commandeered, you name it. Like a bunch of stuff is actually coming out and happening.
1: And I have some information that I want to okay. bring up. So sure. Woody Johnson and James Dolan, uh-huh. I hear, are Russian oligarchs. We should put Woody pressure Johnson on them James to sell Dolan. their teams, to sell the the Jets, and to sell the Knicks. They're being pressured to sell. No, I'm joke. It's a joke. Oh, so Woody Johnson <laughs> is the owner of the Jets. The Jets uh-huh. are terrible, and the Knicks are bad. James Dolan is the owner <laughs> of the Knicks. So I said we should pressure <laughs> them to sell. They're Russian oligarchs, so they should be forced to sell their team. <laughs> Why?
2: So that it could get better. Are you just selfishly so saying else this because you're Jets fan? It
1: yeah, cuz I'm a Jets and Knicks fan and I know I just wouldn't like them to sell their teams and have new ownership, but sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no, your joke. <laughs> uh, okay, so so where
2: was I? Uh, yeah, the quest Okay, so the question on people's minds is is whether or not these sanctions are making a difference. You know, the idea is that all you need to do is sanction the shit out of a bunch of people that are close to Putin particularly the rich and powerful people, and that eventually they'll turn around and persuade Putin to back off. It's kind of an interesting angle. I'm not certain if I think it's a good one or not yet, although I'm
1: leaning well, well, towards here's it's not a good one. Here's the thing. I don't think that, that that's... Um, so I think it's important to note that Russia is not really an oligarchy. And when I say that, I mean that they have a billionaire class, mm-hmm. but they're a dictatorship. They're a monarchy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. They're everything is from the top up. Like Putin is a true dictator who controls I think the major decisions. Like they're not the billionaire class is not making or not forcing Putin to make certain decisions. Putin mm-hmm. is making those decisions on his own. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why he became popular, and we've talked about this a bunch, is that he turned on the oligarchs. They used to have an oligarchy in the 1990s, but when Putin became president, he turned on a lot of them. He either exiled them or jailed them or, um, you know, forced them to be compliant. Um, Mm -hmm. So he garners—I don't think most Russians will will really care about sanctions towards— the, the billionaires just because they have a bad experience with the um, with the billionaires anyway. right? But something I, I kind of want to add is I, I don't think that this will um, hurt Putin personally. The main reason why is because often I, he's good at propaganda and you can already see it. I don't know if like a lot of people have not seen the Russian propaganda. I think it's worth taking a look at even if it's Russian mm-hmm. propaganda because mm-hmm. it's just I interesting agree. to show you what's in the mind of the average Russian or what they're being fed and yeah, one like of the what's things that they're being fed mm-hmm. yeah like I think yeah. you should be you know sunshine is the best antidote you know it's the best policy um, I think a lot of Russians support the war and they know how to I think he knows how to turn this policy into us against the world us against the world absolutely I agree so often, when you see sang- like hardcore sanctions hit countries, it actually empowers regimes instead of um, instead of causing um, right. It gives them, it like gives them ammo. Because yeah, it gives them ammo. Mm-hmm. They can say like, "Hey, they hate us because we're Russians." You know, they're this is an attack on the Russian people. Right. So I think that
2: this I mean, will Iran most likely... does the same thing, right? Exactly. North, Iran is the same certain, way. I mean, to a certain extent, North Korea does too, but that they're an interesting exception. But yeah, I mean, every time we sanction Iran, they're just like, oh, look at these fucking Americans. They're being dicks again, right? We're Iranians. Let's unite, right? Um, Nevertheless, I still want to take a look at, like, what's going on with these oligarchs because the idea is that, you know, maximum pressure on these these oligarchs and then maybe it'll make an impact. I mean, because legitimately they do have a lot of money and, you know... They might not have the ear of Putin in the way that many people believe that they do, but they certainly have an impact on the economy and therefore you know, the Russian people, and maybe maybe that has enough impact to, to make a difference. So let's just take a look at some of the oligarchs that have been put under these severe sanctions and just see where they're at today. Um, so there's this one I'm sure you're probably familiar with, Russian tycoon Oleg Deripaska, right? Uh, and he was known to be very close with Vladimir Putin. And he recently called for the war in Ukraine to be stopped as soon as possible. That happened today, March 7th, on Twitter. And uh, he said, We need peace as soon as possible, as we have already passed the point of no return. The entire world will be different. Russia will be different as well. So that's what he said. Um, also today, uh, in a statement addressed to some steel workers in a factory, uh, this tycoon, Vladimir Listin, uh, said that lives lost in Ukraine. Uh, ...is a tragedy, and that it was hard to justify, and that he called for peaceful diplomatic efforts to solve the conflict. Just yesterday, uh, a wealthy Russian businessman, Oleg Tinkoff, uh, announced publicly that... This one's interesting. He announced publicly that he is no longer a billionaire. Apparently he lost a shit ton of money after all these sanctions that were imposed on him you know, over the war in Ukraine... And he also, interestingly enough, he asked the media to stop calling him an oligarch, which is kind of a boo-hoo moment, I
1: think. Um, and Well, I think it's fair. I, mean, I think that's fair because oligarchy is just a term, it means rule by a few. Right. And but but I, I, I don't is, think it's he's just saying kind of a word we use for billionaires. He, I honestly I think don't it,
2: think I don't I don't think he's saying stop calling me an oligarch because that's factual. Because I have correct. no power.
1: Right. No, I guess maybe. Yeah. I think he's say just saying,
2: like, stop calling me an oligarch because it's mean. <laughs> you know, stop demonizing me, you know? Um, and so I, I think this in, it raises an interesting question for me. And, and it's whether or not we think that robbing all these rich guys of their wealth has an impact on Putin. And at least, you know, from your perspective, Henry, it doesn't seem like it would, you know? And, you know, Russia's invasion in Ukraine, I'm just not certain, just like you, that, that sanctioning these people will have any impact on, on, the, on this current conflict, but I can certainly understand the logic, right? You apply maximum pressure to those that are around Putin, and the idea there being that, you know, if enough of them try to call in a favor, so to speak, with Putin, maybe it makes a little impact, right? But, you know, in the case of that former billionaire, I just wonder out loud, like if we're pretending that, you know, it is an oligarchy even though as you pointed out it probably isn't and Russia is more of a dictatorship, right? And they don't actually have as much power as we think they do, but let's pretend that they do. For this particular former billionaire, I wonder if Putin would even care anymore what this guy has to say, you know? After all, the guy just lost the majority of his money and and therefore all of his power. How much influence could he possibly have anymore? I think you'll you'll find this fascinating, Henry. It's just the way that we've chosen the particular oligarchs to be sanctioned. And it's a little trouble, troubling. I remember right in the beginning when we announced sanctions. I talked to you about it on the show. I'm like, okay, so we picked a handful of Russian oligarchs to sanction, but not Putin. I mean, we eventually did sanction Putin too, but like he wasn't even on the on the <laughs> on the short list for the first round. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which was kind of weird. And I think you'll you'll find this part a little troubling and and interesting. Uh, Justin Trudeau, Canadian prime minister, uh, he announced that he's going to be targeting 10 oligarchs. And he admitted that that list was provided to him by Alexei Navalny, uh, who you might know as the Russian opposition politician. You know, we had a whole show about how he got poisoned. Pretty interesting one. Um, What I find troubling about this, though, is that we're basically getting a hit list From a guy who has a motive to do harm to Putin and those around him. Now, you know, most of the guys on this list are probably not very great people who took advantage of the Russian people to acquire just ridiculous wealth, you know, that they have now, but that doesn't mean that I feel very comfortable with the idea of picking on them because some opposition leader named them. Like, think about that. Would it be like if Biden put us into a situation where we're invading, I don't know, Mexico or some shit, right? And in response, countries all over the world decided to ask Trump to name Americans to sanction. Yeah, like, he'd probably have a few people on that list that would be relevant to target for sanctions. But you got to believe that there's also a couple people on that list that he just had a personal vendetta against. You know? So. Rosie. Not super... Hillary. <sighs> Hillary. <laughs> oh, man. You know what I mean? Like,. It... It's just weird, and I'm not super comfortable with the idea entirely, and I, and and that's coming from from a guy who's fairly liberal. You know, like I'm I'm all for taxing the rich and and you know, that stuff, but something doesn't sit super well with me about targeting random individuals for sanctions by asking the opposition to name them.
1: Yeah, um, and, that is that is pretty weird. But I'm honestly more troubled by just like the the, I think that what the sanctions could end up doing is turning Russia into just like the Russian population into like a closed paranoid society mm-hmm. where they they take on a mentality of like you know this is again like us against the world like the world's out to mm-hmm. get us um, mm-hmm. and you know my fear is that 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 actually fosters, way stronger russian nationalism
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: dangerous dangerous times and 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 just to just to peel it back and and just focus specifically on this particular scenario this this war i think you know i had the thought that the idea of these sanctions you know just the idea of the sanction not even the sanction itself I thought that that might have been enough to prevent Putin from going any farther than the Donbass, but here we are, you know, they're all over the place. And there's also this idea that Russia, and specifically Putin, believed that the West was going to find a reason to sanction them anyway, you know, and that kind of takes the edge off of the threat of sanctioning in general. And and, and it it is the case that, you know, a couple of oligarchs just, you know, getting sanctions, that's just kind of like collateral damage, rather than something... That could have a major impact on the decision-making in Russia. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together.
1: Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective
3: on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Yeah, well, oh, yeah. I guess, you know, I, the biggest thing is that they're being removed from the, you know, the global banking system. And, you know, I think what that could potentially do is just um, force the need for alternative banking systems to be created.
2: I mean, that's kind of what we're starting to see between Russia and China. They're already developing that. So, there are ways around the sanctions. Anyhow.
1: The, there are, they there are, and then you have to also realize that Russia is is um, energy and food de- um, independent. Meaning, they're not buying, they're not like Iraq, where, you know, Iraq was energy dependent, but... Um, Yeah, but now they can't get iPhones or
2: IKEA desks anymore.
1: (laughs) Did you hear about that? They'll be able to. They'll. I know. I know. Not IKEA. I know that was a big deal for IKEA because a lot of their businesses in Russia. Yeah. Um, Which I did not know at all, but I don't know. They'll probably find ways to get iPhones on the black market. They'll make their own cheap desks. (laughs) They'll make their own cheap desks, and I I have no doubt there are going to be ways to find get phones into Russia iphones yeah. on a russia no, in the black no market i mean i, I think is just m- gonna it create might even parallel be apple markets
2: it might even be apple right they start just selling this, this their own de- black market phones
1: this is definitely going to cause a lot of um economic hardship for the average russian person but yeah i mean i think this is, this, this is also going to cause a lot of economic hardship for people across the entire world um that's right they have the advantage of being food and, and um, energy dependent like the point i was trying to make was that iraq they weren't food dependent, and so those sanctions um led to people starving to death. Russia's not in the same situation as as a country like Iraq was in the 1990s um mm-hmm. and even those those sanctions on Saddam hussein they didn't work they didn't those those sanctions didn't cause regime change it was It wasn't yeah. until the u s invaded and literally captured him in a cave i mean that's when the regime changed so I just don't think that is a successful outcome. I think people are expecting there to be or hoping that there's some popular revolution because of the living conditions or there is like an internal coup that goes on. There's all there's already uh, rumors. There was a rumor which, you know, it seemed very unlikely that uh, uh, Sergei Shigoi was planning a coup against Vladimir Putin. And they're like, oh, yeah. Sergei, their defense minister. It mm-hmm. ended up not being true or, I mean, maybe I didn't confirm if it wasn't true or not, but it just seemed very far-fetched. Um, so I think people expecting that to happen, I, I don't, I mean, I just don't. Hey, I'm not, I guess I'm not a, the the best um, prognosticator. That's the word, right? <laughs> yeah. Prognosticator of what's going on in Russia. But I don't think, if you're hoping for that, I don't think it's going to happen. Like, I don't think there's going to be a coup against Putin.
2: Yeah, I mean, even if there was, I think that that kind of raises a bunch of other interesting questions. You know, violent change of, of leadership doesn't always work out very well. I mean, when in 2014, when the, the Euromaiden stuff happened and, you know, the leadership changed in Ukraine, look where we're at now. You know, for better or for worse, things happen, right?
1: Yeah. Shit changes. You never know. Yeah. You never know what freak behind the guy that you dislike is going to show up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And not to say that
2: Zelensky's a freak or anything like that, but the decisions that Zelensky— Poroshenko was made, a freak. Yeah, he certainly was.
3: The decisions still that he made— is a freak.
2: For better or for worse, I think, you know, had an impact on, on where we are today. So— Maybe we can jump topics because uh, we're getting kind of close to the uh, you know, end of our discussion here. And there's still so many other interesting little news stories that I wanted to go over. But I wanted to chat really quickly with you about the humanitarian corridors. Have you been following any of the news on this lately?
1: Not. I haven't really been um, keeping track of them too much. I know that there's like opposite claims. I haven't looked into mm-hmm. them. I, from what I've seen, both stories seem like propaganda the, the mm-hmm. pro-Ukrainian and the pro-Russian side. One side mm-hmm. says that Russia's bombing the humanitarian corridors and then, like, intentionally targeting them and trying to actively seeking them out to kill civilians, mm-hmm. which I don't believe is happening. And then the Russians are saying that the Ukrainians are using, um, they're using those people as human shields. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure what to believe, and I'm just kind of waiting for... I'm really just waiting for a book to be written on this to come up with my <laughs> conclusions. Yeah, I feel
2: you. But I, 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 I'm on your, your side on that one, but it, it doesn't stop my curiosity. Uh, so I just kind of want to talk a little bit about it because I've been doing a little bit of digging on it. And I'll premise this by saying exactly what you're saying. I think it all of the information I'm reading is is highly propagandized on both sides. And so I don't take either as the truth, but I'll just kind of bring them up so that folks who listen to the show can kind of hear what we're hearing um so you know as as you said just to kind of do this in reverse and and we've been learning this even in our conversations in slack that you know russia is saying that ukraine isn't allowing people to leave their towns uh you know according to some sources there's like 182 instances of civilian cars being shot upon by the ukrainian forces and there's videos and all kinds of crazy shit happening, you know? Um, and, you know, on the other side, the, the Russians uh, are allegedly mining roads, meaning putting mines in roads, bombs that would be used for, you know, civilians to leave and flee. And, you know, everybody's kind of talking shit on both sides. And, and the unfortunate part about this is that there are indeed... A lot of Ukrainians that are kind of stuck where they're at right now, and I want to I want to say that at the same time, there have been 1.5 million Ukrainians that have fled successfully, and I feel like that number is probably going to be irrelevant in the next few hours. It'll be more, and I'm still not certain the scope of this particular problem, because you know, my gut tells me that this is an isolated incident. That's being exaggerated on both sides. I definitely think that you know some critical strategic areas are under heavy bombardment uh, and have experienced situations where civilians are either prevented from leaving or cannot leave. You know, for practical reasons. You know, it, it, shit. It could be on purpose because Ukrainians know that they'll be fucked if the civilians are gone. And one of the talking points on the on the Russian side is that you know they're using them as meat shields because. The moment there aren't the there isn't the threat of of um, collateral damage that the Russians you know Russians take their gloves off and they go all out, which makes sense, right? You know it 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 it, it seems that that would be the case. Um, and 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 if you wanted to go down that line and and kind of think about it, maybe maybe it is true that some of these Ukrainian elements are 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 preventing people from leaving because it would be easier, you know, to to fight off the Russians as an insurgency rather than, you know, as a, you know, head-on military conflict, you know, military on military. Um, But that's pretty nefarious. You know, it it could also be equally, you know, the case that it's, you know, a lot of these cases of shooting on civilians is totally accidental. It's war, right? They have no idea what's going on. And, you know, I can imagine that a lot of the people are under extreme duress. It's super easy to make mistakes. You know, and you know one mistake can turn into someone else's, you know, talking point very quickly. Um, I think on the other side, I read today that Moscow recently said that it would let Ukrainians, civilians, flee, uh, but to Russia, <laughs> you know. Um, so they're opening up these corridors, uh, on the eastern part of Ukraine, where if you want to flee, you're going to go to Russia. And if you're in the Kiev area, if you want to flee, you can flee to Belarus. But noteworthy about that is that they're not allowed to flee westward. Like into Ukraine, like further into Ukraine or into NATO countries, surrounding countries. So there's a whole lot of shit going on right now. Um, and and again, I, I want to point out that there like millions of people have left already. And millions more will leave at some point. I think the estimate is like something like five million people will have fled by the time this is all over, uh, and that causes some some interesting you know debates, some some talks to be had. Not too long ago, we had a Syrian refugee crisis, and a lot of European countries closed their doors to those those people. Whereas now we're having this Ukrainian crisis, and it almost seems like you know doors wide open. If anything, they're offering free train rides and all types of support, you know. It's kind well, of a very interesting situation.
1: Well, countries like Poland didn't take any Syrian refugees. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're... And they've taken hundreds of you know, they're taking of basically... Yeah, they're taking most of the Ukrainian refugees. Mm-hmm. They want the Ukrainian refugees, at least I was reading. Um, you know, they... Poland... Ukrainian and, and Polish, they're, they're a similar language um there's similar cultures you know a lot of poles and ukrainians were once in the same state so mm-hmm. they see it as like good immigration they don't want the muslims <laughs> yeah that's what it is that's that's really it is they're just like they're europeans we can take them we don't want the muslims I but
2: i i mean i've also read reports about you know nigerian students or other you know um other ethnic minorities that aren't Ukrainian having trouble getting over to those countries. Yeah,
1: I've heard that too. You know, for
2: for reasons that uh, you know, well, at the at face value, feel just like straight up racism. You know.
1: Hey, man, I but agree. You know, I think that. Of- I- I agree. Have you seen the coverage on this at all? Like, just like some of the more outlandish coverage from like the BBC. Yeah, yeah. There has been a couple of of situations where anchors have been like, "It's." I just want to try to choose my words wisely, but it's just not. It's weird seeing white people fleeing a war. Like they're, that's how yeah. they're talking. Like, it's yeah. take in mind these aren't like uh, Syrians; they're white people. So it's troubling for us to see more of that. Right. There there's been right. um Alan McCloyd, uh Mac-Cloid, I think his name's Alan McCloyd. He has this whole Twitter thread where he's documenting all of that. Like I encourage you to 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 look at that. It's very interesting. But he just goes over like the double standard between how the world treats like, you know, white European refugees or, you know, war in a white European country and then war in like a in a middle eastern or african country and mm-hmm. i have to say you know i used to be kind of um allergic to those type of arguments but i mean i don't know it's clear as day like there's like a double standard yeah. when covering it yeah. you're like oh they're muslims you know they've been killing each other for centuries oh this is so uncivilized how do how does a uh, it's troublesome seeing a blue-eyed baby as a refugee. Yeah, that one guy, the one guy was like, yeah, you don't, you don't, it's not every day that
2: you see, like, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed refugee, and it's like, wow, bro.
1: (laughs) There was this one person on, I don't know what network it was, but I don't know if it was, like, one of the far-right people they were interviewing or what, but this Ukrainian guy, is like, my heart breaks seeing these blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white children run. (laughs) Like, when you're, like, oh, that's weird. (laughs) I mean, that's sad. Of course, it's horrible seeing any child in a you know be removed from his home and um but obviously i'm not trying to be facetious and you're not trying to be facetious at all these people are going through tremendous pain and suffering and their lives are shattered don't be empathetic i mean be don't be empathetic be sympathetic to how horrible those conditions are and i think it's very great that poland is uh you know taking all those those uh those citizens, those those refugees. I mean, despite them not wanting to take the the brown refugees, um, right. I mean, still good. They're taking these refugees. Um, yeah, yeah. You got you got to
2: take it for what, it, for I'm what it gonna is. I'm not going to be like,
1: hey, Poland, you can't take those refugees because you didn't take the refugees from from the Middle East. Right. Um, I mean, these people need that's somewhere to go, and, and and like I think a lot of the Ukrainians prefer to go to Poland than to England just because it's an easier transition for them. For sure. They would also this prefer
2: war- to go to Poland than to go to Russia, which which is what makes this announcement this recent announcement by Moscow kind of wild, you know? They're like, "Yeah, sure, you can you can flee, but you have to go to a hostile country." <laughs> you know? It seems like like that's not an answer. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's not that's not a good faith, you know, act. Um but then again, you, like I've seen the reports about apparently Ukrainians firing on their own citizens for trying to leave, you know? So I feel like everybody's fucked up right now. Everyone's being a dick.
1: That's war, man. They're all bad. Every I mean, it's, I think we just, we um, look at war like an Avengers movie mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we don't people need a process like the reality is that you know a lot of people are dying a lot of people are dying based off like just the casualty numbers i've seen a lot of people are dying and um it's awful it's very awful and you know every single soldier that dies despite being either russian or ukrainian i mean that's like a family that doesn't have their dad anymore or yeah. a mom who just lost her son, like it's just very mm-hmm. sad, like that's why I just want the war to end as soon as possible, yep. and just so there's mm-hmm. a peace settlement, and I really don't want there to be some like long term insurgency where more people die and there's more death and destruction and I really don't want to see Kiev be destroyed like i I would hate if the Russians started really taking the gloves off and obliterating Kiev like Kiev is a historic city where my my grand my family's from kiev on my dad's side mm-hmm. my my grandfather is from kiev um he's not ukrainian he was polish but he was a pole in kiev and um i don't want to see that city destroyed i don't want to see any city destroyed but that would just be like an awful thing to see like this historic um you know one of the i mean kiev was considered one of the one of the three great cities in russia it was um it was um, Moscow, Kiev, and Odessa were considered the three great cities of Russia. Odessa mm-hmm. and Kiev are both part of Ukraine. Right. Uh, the Ukraine. Thing, yeah. The Ukraine or Ukraine. You know, it's mm-hmm. funny. I've been listening to these lectures by John, um, by like these older people, um, John Mearshire and Ray McGovern. And the older someone is, the more often they'll use the word the Ukraine mm-hmm. rather than Ukraine. Because the Ukraine was a region in Russia, like the like an historic region, like the Ukraine, and then see, Ukraine is the nation. So you hear mm-hmm. people say the Ukraine all the time, and more often than not, it's the it's the, the region. the Excuse me, the Ukraine is is um used by older people who are you know used to the Soviet Union and, and the Ukraine being a region rather than like a nation state. Right, kind of like the South yeah the south South.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: well I've got one last thing and this is uh, something that I thought was just kind of disgusting but also a little bit funny Um, I'm going to regret saying that (laughs) in a second there was a meme that uh, somebody posted in slack that got me interested because I wanted to read the actual thing and it and it. I'll just read it to you it's kind of like one of those um it's like in a comic book uh uh, format and you know there's a guy and he says hey corporate press how's it going and then the next cell is uh you know a screenshot of a Huffington Post uh, article that reads the headline is could a small nuclear war reverse global warming and then you know it's just like the cell of the guy and then the cell of a guy again saying Jesus Christ and it's it's really crazy. Um and, and I think this is kinda of like on the back of everyone's minds, you know. Everyone thinks that shit, we're on the brink of a
1: nuclear war and and you know, I fucking hope not, but um, I went back and I found the article. It's the back of my mind, man. It's on it's um I've never been more like scared of uh anything in international relations in my life.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think yeah. that goes for everyone, right? Like everyone listening to this, mm-hmm. we've never been close to a nuclear war in our lifetime, our parents' no. lifetime. There were there were some times, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then there was another instance when there was a guy. There was um, there's a story where the Russians they mistook, they thought a, a missile was fired, and um, you know the, I think it was a nuclear submarine had orders to launch a a warhead and they decided not to. Uh, But it was this guy's decision. He was like, I don't think they did. I'm not going to do it. And he saved this, uh, this Russian submarine captain or admiral or whatever. Saved a bunch of people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. We haven't been there. We haven't experienced this yet. There was that one time like a year or two ago. I think it was 2018, actually, where a bunch of Hawaiians got that like false alarm that ballistic missiles were coming. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, I do. That's so that, crazy. That wasn't real. That wasn't real. Um, Tulsi Gabbard found... uses that Go in ahead. her, was using that a lot in her campaign. But you know what? It's funny because when Tulsi Gabbard was running, and I supported Tulsi Gabbard when she was running. Um, I donated money. She was one candidate I've ever donated to their campaign. And mm-hmm. um, she used to say this in all of her rallies and all of her speeches and, and, and then in the debates, she said her biggest fear was nuclear war. And that was the one thing that she was to, to want to avoid. And I used to think that, you know, that doesn't really resonate with people. I don't think people ever are scared of nuclear war. I don't think people think about nuclear war. This isn't the mm-hmm. Cold War anymore. Like we're not, we don't deal with that.
2: Well. Is it though?
1: Now, I it might be. No, it's yeah. the new Cold War. I think it's the Cold War again, Cold War two. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's definitely Cold War two. Um, but now Tulsi Gabbard, now that message resonates with a lot more people. Yeah, for sure.
2: And you know, th- this I, I went and found that article by the way, um, and and this article and the 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 study that it references has been popping up a bit more. Recently, But the original article was actually written in 2011, like well before the context of this. But I, th- I think a couple of people have been picking it up and almost kind of omitting the grander context. So the beginning of it read, um, Scientists from NASA and a number of other institutions have recently been modeling the effects of a war involving 100 Hiroshima-level bombs, or 0.03% of the world's nuclear arsenal according to national geographic the research suggests that a mil- that 5 million metric tons of black carbon would be swept up into the lowest part of the atmosphere the result according to nasa climate models could actually be global cooling and what's weird is that in the dark corners of the internet i'm actually seeing some weird global climate people cheerleading this saying like hey let's 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 get into a little mini nuclear war that we can we can do a hundred bombs and i'm just like oh my god you're fucking crazy what they fail to realize and and i continued reading and i even looked at the national geographic study is that (laughs) uh it would be catastrophic even if it does uh you know cause a bit of global cooling apparently you know the the global temperatures would go you know down about two and a half degrees Fahrenheit uh, in the two to three years following the war and in the tropical areas you know places like Puerto Rico, that would go down to as much as like seven degrees Fahrenheit and that would cause a ridiculous amount of megastorms, like just ridiculous mega mega storms. Um, this is not at all something that you want uh, and I, I find it kind of repulsing that you know some news outlets are kind of leading with, Hey, you know, this could probably revo- uh, you know, reverse global warming. The the first thing should be this would be a fucking disaster. <laughs> you know, like the, the article's titles shouldn't be as clickbaity as it is. But I don't know. I found that I found that interesting. I wanted to
1: clear the eight air. reasons why nuclear war is good. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. I don't think I don't think there's any circumstance where nuclear war is good. Hopefully, hopefully Maybe blow up a fucking
2: that. asteroid that's coming towards Earth. That's about it, right? So, Nuclear war
1: against an asteroid. Did you see, hear about this? So this is interesting. That because no one's really paying attention to the Russian propaganda, mm-hmm. and I think I think you should. But it's like being blocked out completely, and it's worth looking at. But um, there I guess the Russian like daily military briefings. They're done by a, um, a guy named Igor Konoshenkoff. And he does these YouTube videos or videos for the Russian public about the military and how they're doing and all this stuff. And today, or it was yes, maybe been yesterday, he had made a statement that, so one of them was that the Russia destroyed the entire Ukrainian Air Force, Um, Another one was that he threatened to—that the Russians threatened to—well, they they accused Romania of hosting some Ukrainian fighter jets, and they threatened Romania. They said Mm -hmm. they were going to bomb their airspace. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they made claims that the Ukraine, or Ukraine, was building biological weapons— and they had proof yeah. that the United States was funding these biological weapons, mm-hmm. and they said they had the documentation that will come out. They had the documents that will got the documents come out right here, time. Russia. <laughs> so it's inter- another thing that's really interesting is that everyone's like talking about false flags right now, and that's what I'm really concerned uh-huh. about—like some kind of horrible attack that happens in, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And one side blaming the other to, um, you know, either, I guess in in Russia's case, you know, further justify the war and Ukraine's case, um, get other states involved in the war. Um, I find that real scary that this is these conversations are going on. I know what are your thoughts? Because if, if that's
2: making its way into the talking points, the propaganda You got to know that somebody in a dark corner somewhere has thought about this scenario or even manufacturing that scenario. I I, I hear a lot of the same thing coming around about uh, Ukrainians trying to build nuclear bombs or dirty nuclear bombs. And, you know, just red alert goes off for me. It's like, hey, this is lying us into Iraq all over again, except the Russia version. You know, super, super easy to get people scared by saying, hey, bad man have big gun. You
1: know what I mean? Well, Zelensky, so in his speech in Munich before the invasion, you know, he had mentioned, he's like, hey, this is actually a fair point that he made. He's like, hey, the Ukrainians, we left, we gave up our nuclear weapons in return for like economic relief. But because they did, because Ukraine had... After the disintegration of the Soviet Union, they had nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. but they gave them up. And they gave them up in 1997, and they gave them up in return for, like, economic relief and stuff like that. And it was like a joint um, objective of the Russians and the United States was to de them. And right. I guess in that but agreement also- that they would be de there would be some type of security uh, That's guarantee. That's right. And that's Zelensky mentioned that, so him. I think mm-hmm. in the context of him saying that, because he did say that we are, you know, maybe we'll start our own nuclear program, and, and Putin's like, hey, uh, you know, oh, that's a uh, nuclear program, um, which he shouldn't have said if you know on the cuff of no, their it was division. a stupid thing to but say, but it was a fair, it was a fair point I thought that they made because they did kind of, that is true like they did give up their nuclear arms in return for uh at least tacit security guarantees agreement maybe they weren't nato mm-hmm. guarantees but i thought it was interesting well that it, he, was that. it was that from both that was a the, context the of the nuclear and, weapons conversation it was from both
2: it was from both the u.s and russia right like
1: yeah that neither of them would fuck with them
2: if they gave up these weapons and i, I just want to put this out there in case I wasn't super clear any of the times that we have spoken about it it would be incredibly obvious if ukraine was building a nuclear weapon do they have the capability sure they have they have you know uh nuclear facilities they can get fissile material but in order to enrich that fissile material to the levels necessary to create a weapon weaponized plutonium or uranium it takes not only a long time, which I don't think is on the side of the Ukrainians right now, but also it takes a lot of material. It's fairly obvious, you know? And we have watchdogs that have been watching much more hostile nations that have much greater, you know, desire to create these weapons. Um, it would be super obvious, and we would see it. And I'm, so far, I haven't seen any evidence of it. And if all we have right now on the nuclear idea is that Zelensky made a gaffe and pointed out that they gave up their nukes a long time ago and that maybe they should start that process back up. If that's all we have to go on it, that's not sufficient evidence to you know, lie to the Russian people or, or the world, for that matter, about justifications for going into uh, and demilitarizing Ukraine. Yeah, as far as the well, biological weapons go, that one's interesting, right? Because it, it it's not like a Nuclear weapon where it takes quite a lot of time and know
1: how. You can do biological and chemical weapons fairly easily. They Um, just have a guy with COVID like in a basement in the quarantine, (laughs) just coughing on a bullet. We have a man with COVID in there, (laughs) right? Like they just send it, they just send a bunch of people that
2: tested positive for the newest COVID variant, you know, to go to Russia. Yeah, like eh, I don't know, man. I get frustrated with shit like that because I have read and uh, um that particular russian talking point and i even i've even heard about you know in, in direct talks with people who are close to that you know um that scenario and i just i got to be honest i don't i don't totally buy it right now and maybe the reason why i don't buy it is because we've been burned so many times with the us basically lying about you know an adversarial nation and their capabilities or their desire to develop these capabilities, it just seems like right out of the playbook to lie to your population about doing something that you shouldn't be doing in the first place.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And I think, I don't know what the casualty numbers are in Russia. What I heard from, what I saw from the U.S. government that 45, there's been 4,500 Russian soldiers killed. I have no idea what the Ukrainian is, amount is. I would, I would honestly expect it to be more in Ukraine. Um, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that's a lot of people, and a lot. There's a lot of people. That's true. 4,500. That's more than we lost in the U.S. lost in Iraq, right? So, and there's like reports of like hardware being blown up. I've seen so many columns of tanks
2: destroyed, so many convoys, so many. You know, uh, there was just reports like today about. these advanced Russian fighters, the Su-35s that they just put into play, being excuse me, Su-34s, you know, being put into play that have been shot down. There's one, you know, confirmed today, or not today, on March 5th, a couple days ago, that apparently they shot him down and they captured the the pilot, you know. So Ukraine's doing some damage, man.
3: They're not going to. No, they're win, definitely they're they're
1: hitting Russia pretty hard, but it's just that. They're gonna hit them hard. It's just that there's not. It's not gonna be enough to, to beat the Russians. Like it's just there. It's just the odd. Uh, the Russians have the numer the numerical uh, advantage. They have the better weapon systems. They have the more updated technology. And, and it's just, you know, they they've already basically cut off Ukraine from the sea. Um, they basically have uh, freed up the um the separatist regions the i guess the claimed territory of luhansk and Donetsk, and uh now they're basically circled around kiev i don't think that they would want to go into western ukraine but at this point it just it seems like it, it seems like the war is um
2: i don't want to say I mean, over, they, they've but already it's, they've it's already like, been west of the the Dnieper vis-a-vis belarus right that's how they're encircling kiev um my hope is that they don't go any farther, but I'm not placing any bets
1: on that, to be very honest. I think they've already gone way too far. Yeah, I'm just hoping that the war ends. I'm just hoping that something, some type of peace deal is made within the next... Um, I mean, as soon as possible, not within the next what. Like, as soon as possible. But um, mm-hmm. and I guess we'll see. There's been a couple of leaders who... Um, who have been trying to negotiate, including uh, Niftali Bennett, um, which is interesting. But it's hard to find a good mediator for this. Yeah, really is. Because it seems like Putin will not talk to Zelensky. He calls him the cocaine addict. And, um, I don't know, maybe Erdogan? We've seen his name as a potential mediator. I mean he's a he's a fucking nutcase too, but you know, he's got a close enough relationship
2: with Russia and he happens to be a part of NATO, that could be a yeah. good that could be a good option. Even though I'm saying good with air quotes here, no one can see it, but you know,
1: good option. It'd have to be like another strongman type guy. Yeah. It couldn't be like Macron. I don't know, man. I don't know. Macron's don't been know. trying. Maybe, Macron's maybe, met with maybe. him a couple of times. He's on. He's yeah, dude, been he's trying he's, hardest he's, out of anyone.
2: He's one of the only ones that actually gets phone calls with Putin. Yeah, to be honest.
1: He's been trying. I I was hoping that maybe Nathalie Bennett could do something, but I don't know.
3: No, maybe. I mean they just it's recently be, voted
1: to. They just recently voted
2: to condemn Russia, so that doesn't look good. For that,
1: yeah, and and they also. Um, in response, they voted to um, Russia as recognizing the Golan Heights as uh, Syrian.
2: Mm-hmm. And, Which, um, let's not open up that fucking camera. But it's, di- now, it's different.
1: Right? Israel Jeez. Israel has, like, a weird relationship with Russia because they actually have a lot of Russian immigrants. who right, they do. are pro-Putin in some regard. Mm-hmm. Um, But I guess it's kind of split, though, between I think they just call everyone Russian who comes there. And and I think there's a lot of immigrants from the from Ukraine. And I'm calling it the Ukraine now um, from (laughs) Ukraine and and Russia. And everyone just calls Mm -hmm. them Russia. But it might be pretty split. Um, But it's hard. It's like a a thin line. It's um, between who's considered Russian and who's considered Ukraine, because a lot of it's just like based off what your language is. Um, and I think a lot of them are just kind of lumped together as Russian. Yeah. Maybe we should do an episode on that next. What is the borders (laughs) of the borders of Ukraine and how that, you know, kind of like the imperial birth, not the imperial, but like the nation state of Russia and Ukraine and how they were built. And I think that would actually be valuable. And and I was actually breeding on that today. So maybe we should do something like that um definitely we've actually kind of started that series in the past but we never really got you know what happened you know it's so funny we were doing a series on russia like the birth of russia and like the nation state of russia and then the um then the conflict in gaza happened that's right and then we stopped and now this conflict has happened and we had to stop our korean war series (laughs) <laughs> which we're not going to yeah. stop. We, we have the next episode recorded already and just a lot of the good notes and day. stuff planned for, for the rest of the series. It's just that, you know, people don't, people are so, people are asking us to do episodes on this. So, you know, it's, yeah, you got to follow up with our fan base says. Um, all mm-hmm. right. You want to wrap this one up? Yeah, man. Okay. Thanks guys for listening to another episode. Be safe out there. Try not to worry too much. Do not spend all day looking at videos of people getting killed. That is not a good way to keep your sanity. So get away from your phone. And, uh, well, when you have your phone, though, make sure you rate and review Bro History on either Spotify or iTunes. And uh, join us on Patreon. You're doing a better job at pitching our Patreon, so why don't you do it? For sure. I mean, I I think –
2: the bulk of this episode was just questions and resources and materials and, and ideas that were provided by, you know, the awesome members of Patreon. And, and, you know, just recently we hit a pretty big milestone in the last 30 days, 16% of all the messages that we've sent and received on Slack have happened, you know, so it's, it's lighting up. The conversation is great. You know, there's a lot of, uh, opposing viewpoints. There's a lot of uh, viewpoints that are aligned with one another. I think we're all kind of in the same boat. We're all figuring this out together. Um, and it's also just a great way for you to tell us what do you want to see? What do you want to hear about? What do you want us to talk about? What do you want us to cover? Um, so this one goes out to the fans of, uh, of ours that are on Patreon. So thanks. Thanks guys for supporting us.
1: Yes. Thanks guys. And thank you for listening. We will, our schedule is, um, kind of messed up right now, but Another episode will be out relatively soon. So just a hold tight and uh, we'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.